Father, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for its deepness, for its richness, and for the love that you show to us through it. Lord, please bless our time richly tonight. May we be enriched by the time we spend here together studying. And Lord, may you have your work in us, have your way. May your word dwell in us richly. Tonight we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, Mark chapter 4, we're in verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the boat, they took him with, uh, they took him with them in their boat, just as he was. And other boats were... Uh, Sorry, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Okay, it's a familiar story, and as, as preachers we come to these familiar stories and you sometimes wonder, you know, what, what can I do here other than, than uh, the stuff you're all familiar with? But uh, in looking at this passage, there's actually so much here and it's a wonderful example of many of my favorite things in the Bible it's a wonderful example of reliance upon the Old Testament it's a wonderful example of um, of the flow uh, and the the context of Mark's gospel and it's a wonderful example as well of Mark's use of little literary devices little things to 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 uh, emphasize things to draw things to our attention and so there's all sorts of detail here that you may perhaps uh, not have seen before. So, we need to understand the section we are now getting into contextually, okay? So this is what's happened so far. The Gospel, the prologue, the baptism of Jesus. Jesus now goes into the wilderness to finish his preparation and the battle with Satan begins. And then he goes... Uh, off to do his ministry and the first uh, incident at the start of his ministry is he is after he's called the first few disciples the first incident anyway is him casting the demon out of a man which is the beginning of uh, Jesus's authority and him exercising the ministry that God has given him and then we see throughout that section we see Jesus fulfilling his ministry of preaching we see him a reluctant healer, and we see him uh, engaging in controversies that ultimately leads to everyone making a decision. Jesus makes a decision about his disciples, the, uh, the, uh, his family make a decision about what they think about him, and the religious leaders on behalf of the Jews make a decision uh, about what they think about him. They have decided who he is. He is a man possessed by Beelzebub, and that's why he has authority over demons. And 
Then we come to chapter 4, which is what we've dealt with the last couple of weeks, and because of the rejection of uh, Jesus by Israel, because that was the unforgivable sin, because there is now no turning back of the clock, Jesus is now changing his ministry. He's gone from plain teaching to teaching in ways that people can't understand and explaining to his disciples what it is that he means in private so that they can understand. We've gone from public teaching to private training. So when we now come to the end of chapter 4, if it was me giving the chapters, I would start chapter 5 here. It's a new section. Um, I think to, to the casual reader of Mark's gospel, it can look like, oh, Mark's throwing in a few miracles, now there's something else going on, now he's throwing in a few more miracles. That's not it at all. The miracles previously, as we've already seen, had a specific purpose, which was getting Israel to make a decision. That's happened, that's been done. These miracles coming up are miracles that are specifically, they're specifically there for the disciples and for their training. He's gone from public ministry to private ministry, and now predominantly we're dealing with a series of miracles going through into chapter 5, where Jesus is now training his disciples, having trained them in words, he's now training them in action. So that's what we're looking at and that's what we're seeing. So with all that by way of introduction, let's look at the lesson that he has for them and therefore, of course, for us. On that day when evening had come. Now that to me is astonishing. On that day. This is the same day. So we have this day, we have the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and... Um, we have the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, we have the parables being given, the, 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 the family, and it goes way, way, way back. And now, with all of that happening in one day, and you say, well, did he teach all of those, did he teach all those parables on the same day? I think that Mark is not a chronological gospel, unless he tells us otherwise. The, the Gospels just simply aren't all in chronology. But, but Luke is the chronological Gospel. So I think that Mark has liberty to be able to say, essentially, Jesus took his disciples aside and was teaching parables, and it may not have been those parables, but it probably was, to be frank. There's only a few parables in Mark, and he probably sat down and said, and no doubt the first parable he's ever taught, and the one that he would have taught that day, was the parable of the sower, because it's the foundation for all the others. So I suspect, I suspect that we have this, this so important uh, a day where the event, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I'm sorry, the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is so significant historically for the nation of Israel. It's, it is, they don't know it, but it's one of the most important days in the whole of Israel's history ever more so than the new state of Israel today, and independence there, anything like that. This is a, such a significant day. And all of this happens, and he goes off and he teaches disciples privately. And on the same day, so the point of all of this is this has been a very full, very significant, and very tiring day. 
And it's interesting that Mark, who isn't the one in the Gospel writers who's most chronological, is very keen to give us this chronological detail. When he does give us chronological details, he is, of course, accurate. He doesn't normally bother, but here he is because it's important. It's important to see that it's the end of a day. So the evening has come, presumably it's about to get dark, and he says, let's go across to the other side. And so as has been his way already in Mark's Gospel, when the crowds have drained him, he goes away. And so he goes away in the boat. And leaving the crowd, that's the point of going away, to get rid of the crowd. And, and again, remember where we are. It's not just... And Mark does this a lot in this passage. He gives us a detail that is physical and practical and impacts on the humanity of Christ but yet there's a spiritual and symbolic significance. So here, what's happening is, it's tired, it's the end of the day, and Jesus is saying, let's leave and let's go to the other side. And so leaving the crowd, they go. And Mark is telling us that so that we see this is, this is the transition. This is Jesus training his disciples privately. This isn't for everybody. The crowd is being left behind. There's something deeply symbolic about this act. It's practical. It's physical. Jesus is overwhelmed, he's tired, and he's, he's, he's fully human. And he goes away to get away from the crowd practically, but there is a spiritual significance. He is moving away from the masses and going away to teach his disciples. So, they took uh, him, um, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Two little, little interesting uh, tidbits here, little details. Firstly, isn't that an interesting expression? Just as he was. What does that even mean? And, and the idea that we, you know, the best we can ascertain, the idea behind this is simply that Jesus didn't go and get another cloak. Jesus didn't go and get supplies to prepare. Jesus is there, it's the end of a long day, the disciples are by the way, he said, let's just get in the boat and let's just go. You know, it's like you getting out of the house in a hurry. I'm not even going to bother picking up my cell phone or, or you know, taking a spare coat in case I'm just going. I've got to go. And, and that's the kind of picture that's being painted here. The other thing, other thing here with regards to the other boats is I don't think there's any particular significance here of the other boats other than Mark is painting a picture. This is the kind of detail that clearly speaks of eyewitness testimony. This is somebody, you know, presumably Peter, for whom was the main source of information for, for Mark's Gospel. This is presumably the, the vivid memories, and we're going to see why they have vivid memories. They have vivid memories of this day, and this is, this is the kind of details. We're going out, and there's this, and this was going on. It's, it's like giving a statement to the police of an event. It, it's, it's that kind of detail. And it's interesting when we see these things, because these tend to be things that are being reported firsthand. With Mark, it's slightly different because it's coming via Peter. But nevertheless, this is, this is eyewitness testimony to what has happened. So, here's what happens. A great windstorm arose... And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now, there is at the Sea of Galilee, there is the, on the east and the west, there are high cliffs either side. And that allows for the wind to come down and to whip up a tumultuous storm out of nothing. 
And I know people who are Bible teachers who've been there who said they've actually witnessed that happen on multiple occasions. And you have to remember that uh, these are experienced fishermen. This isn't a day of recreational swimming. You know, you go overboard, you're dead. That's it. In a storm. And they are out there and they know what they're doing and they are petrified. This is not just a bit of bad weather. This is not the equivalent in an airplane of a bit of turbulence. This isn't the captain on an airplane saying, if you would please just fasten your seatbelts, we're going through a period of turbulence right now. This is, the, this is the pilot saying, place your heads between your legs, we're going down. That's what's going on here. And they know it and they're aware of it. So, this such is the situation, and if you can picture the boat here, it's a, a, you know, the open sides, the, the waves are such that they're crashing over the boat, the waves are going into the boat, and the boat is already starting to fill. It's simple physics. When enough water is in the boat, the boat goes underwater. And the boat is already filling up, and clearly there is a danger of the boat sinking, not just them being thrown over. Can you imagine? These are the boats and waves so big that they're coming over. They're, they're probably clinging on for life, for dear life. And the boat is starting to fill up. They've got to somehow not fall out. And even if they do hang on and they do stay in the boat, the boat could sink anyway. That is the situation. But he was in the stern asleep on a cushion. That, my friends, is comedy in the Gospels. That is humorous. You, you've got a picture that is utterly, utterly ridiculous. The boat is filling up with water and there's Jesus. If you, if you can just picture the scene. There is Jesus lying on a cushion asleep as he's getting wet from the bottom up. I mean, not just wet from the... The waves are coming over and whoosh. He's asleep. Now, again, there's physical reality here, which is, I understand there's a spiritual thing coming. I understand there's a point to him being asleep. And I'm going to communicate that. But he was asleep. And he is human. And I don't think it was simply a miracle that he was asleep. You imagine being so exhausted that you can sleep through that. That's humanity right there. And we have the blending of the humanity and deity of Christ in this passage. But the significance of this is ultimately going to be seen a little bit later on. We'll come to that in a minute. The, the, significance is, the main significance is coming, but for what it means practically is for all intents and purposes... Jesus isn't there. This is the guy who casts out demons. This is the guy who heals people. This is the guy who can, um, who does all sorts of miraculous things, you know, claims to be able to heal people. He, um, you know, the man with a withered hand has been healed. Um, the, pa the paralytic that was lowered down has been healed. This is the guy. And he's bailed on them. He 
has bailed on them. And we'll see that in a minute. They woke him and said to him, can we imagine this first? You know, this is Jesus. He's the boss, right? And they're going to respect his leadership. It's like, he's exhausted. He needs to sleep. He said not to disturb him. Are you going to wake him up, Shalab? There's water in the boat. We're about to, at what point do you get to the point where you say, we've got to wake him up? So they must have left him for a while. And they finally wake him up. And this is what they say. Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Literally, they rebuke him. They rebuke Jesus. Are you not bothered? Don't you care? Not the first time. Uh, sorry, it, is, it may be the first time, but it's not the last time in this gospel that we'll have disciples rebuking Jesus. It's going to take them a while to learn a lot of things. But they're essentially saying to Jesus, don't you care? Here we are, about to die. You're the miracle worker. We're no, we're just fishermen. You're the miracle worker, and you've checked out as you've bailed on us. You, 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 you can't not be aware of what's going on. Even in the midst of your sleep, do you, do you simply not care if we all die? Exasperation. An, an exasperating rebuke with the implication, and this is so important, the implication that you've just left us in our time of need. You're just gone. You're not there. Jesus is essentially absent. And he awoke. And he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now, notice the parallel. This storm, which is a storm above all other storms, a storm that without Christ there, they wouldn't have survived, quite likely, was a great storm. And now, the calm is a great calm. As stormy as the storm was, is as calm as the calm. This isn't it dying down. This isn't things gradually getting, getting you know, oh, the wind's just, e the wind's easing off, guys. Chill, we'll be all right in half an hour. This went from massive moment of imminent death to still, boom. That's not the quick starting of a storm and the, the, the quick ending of a storm that you get in that region. That's a miracle. That's a miracle right there. And so he said to them, now, all of this, all of it, is preparation for a lesson. And here's the lesson. Two questions. Why are you afraid? Now, at that point, <laughs> I, I, I see comedy in the scriptures more than most. It, it, I, I know there's a lesson here, but we're so familiar with it, we forget about the shock value the first time we ever read such a story. This is part of the comedy. And he says, so, so why are you afraid? And it's humorous because, well, duh, we were about to die. Right? But it's also humorous because it's like, 
it's like you have in those, comedy, those TV shows or something, where, you know, with kids' shows, that it's behind you. And the person looks around, and that person that was there has kind of moved around the other side. You're like, where? Where is he? No, he's behind you. Oh, okay. No, no, he's behind. And it's like, it's like, there they are, worried about the storm. And he's like, Jesus, Jesus, we're about to die. And he's like, what, what, what are you worried about? What's going on? No waves? No wind? What's your problem? It's, it's kind of humorous. And I think, I think that's deliberate. I think that's there in the text for us. It's a funny story. And the second question he has is, have you still no faith? In other words, I knew earlier you didn't have faith, but is that still the situation? Is that still the situation that it was when we first started doing this stuff? You've seen me do stuff. And despite seeing that, have you still not got faith in me? Now, there's an interesting thing on that point, and this is, this is fun, I like this bit. In that, a lot of the language here, we're going to see in a moment, a lot of the language is rooted in the Old Testament, we're going, going there in a moment. But also, Mark is using the same words that he used in chapter 1 and verse 25 with regards to the exorcism. Remember, that exorcism, the first miracle, was so crucial. And he uses the same language elsewhere. He talked, uh, we, uh, Mark spoke about the spirit casting Jesus out into the wilderness. When the leper um, is healed, Jesus casts him away. The same language that was used with the, with the exorcism to, to link those passages together. And here, we have exactly the same words being used. In Mark 1 and uh, verse uh, 25, Jesus rebukes the, the uh, demon and says, be silent. And literally, it's be still. The words here are the same. He's using the same word for rebuke and the command, one of the words he uses in the command to the demon is the same word he uses in the command to the storm. Isn't that fascinating? I love this kind of stuff. Because what it's doing is it's drawing those passages together. Now, some people read quite a lot into this, and they say that the, that the duplication of language and the connection with Mark 1 implies that the, somehow the storm was demonic in nature. Now, I have no problem with that. I do believe that we know from the book of Job that Satan uh, gives, gets given a, a certain degree of, um, of, uh, of options in how he's, what he's going to do and the suffering he's going to bring. Uh, his, his, his actions are limited by sovereign God, but it doesn't seem to me to be any even remotely problematic that this was a storm uh, arising from Satan, perhaps as a desire to kill the disciples and kill Jesus um, before the cross. Who knows? He is that, that stupid in some senses, I guess. I, I don't know. But I don't think that's the point. I don't think that's the reason for the link. The reason for the link is that he says to them, have you still no faith? And what he's just done a be still rebuke is, or be silent rebuke, is exactly what he did in the first miracle they saw. 
And so in that first miracle, do you remember what happened as a result of that miracle? When he did that exorcism, uh, and the unclean spirit comes out, and everybody who was there, they were amazed. And they questioned amongst themselves, saying, what is this? Who is this guy? With what, what authority he has? How can he do this? In other words, that first miracle provoked questions regarding who Christ was. And they were supposed to have made a decision. They have made a decision. Everyone made decisions. Decisions were chapter 3. So they've made a, a decision that Jesus is who he claims to be. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. He's the one who is going to set up the kingdom of God. They made that choice. They made that decision. And now... Jesus is doing exactly the same thing again. He's rebuking and he's saying, be still, and he's showing his authority. And that's why they have this question. You still have no faith. Why have you still not got any faith? Here I am, essentially doing the same thing again. Now I'm going to come back to this at the end, but there is of course one crucial difference in this. The demoniac, or I should say that phrase for the guy later on, the demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 1, he didn't directly impact upon them. He came in shouting, he didn't come in trying to stab them. This impacts their life. This impacts them. And guys, I do honestly believe the the suffering that God allows us to endure is often incremental because God's desire isn't for us to be happy. I mean, ultimately, he does. I'd have John Piper shaking his head at this point, probably, but, I mean, he does. He wants us to be happy and have delight and find delight in him. But our, our purpose is, his purpose for us is not happiness for happiness' sake. Our, our purpose is, is to find our happiness in him. And the disciples were able to make a decision on who Jesus was by seeing him rebuke and be still kind of authority, by seeing that kind of authority, they were able to make a decision. But it's another whole ball game when you're about to die. And the, the golden, golden lesson from the book of Job is missed by so many evangelicals. We, we all quote Job, who, who when his children died and he lost all his possessions, he, he says, naked I came and naked I'm going to depart. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. We all know, we know of it. And look at what faith he had. Yes, he did. But that's just the setup. That man who had such great faith that that's how he would respond to suffering, ends up suffering even more and completely falls apart. And he does the kind of rebuking of God that the disciples are doing here. And I've got like a hundred Old Testament references in front of me, but I stupidly haven't got this one down. But, but Job says to God, 
essentially multiple times. What are you doing this for? Don't you care? What's your problem? This is a real parallel with Job here. And, and for us as Christians, this is why, as we saw this morning, we always want to have compassion for one another. Because the person that you see falling apart, they may have been through more than you understand. That the circumstances may have accumulated. It may be their personal perfect storm. We all have our things that we dread that others can handle and things that we can handle that others dread. And so we've got to be careful not to judge people in their suffering. Because the most godly man on the earth, the kind of guy whose kids die, who loses all his possessions and still worships God, he ended up shaking his fist to heaven. Have you forgotten me? And notice here the third great. Mark loves his triads. There was a great storm, followed by a great calm, and that great calm causes a great fear. Great fear. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Okay. Here is the lesson, okay? And we're actually probably only about halfway through. We are about to start with this verse, okay? The question is important, it's pointed, it's loaded, and it is the point of the whole path. It's the, it's the summary. It's the, it's the crescendo, rather. It's the, it's the end of this whole thing. This is the whole point. The whole point is, do you have faith? Well, we do have faith. We do believe in you. We, we believe you're going to set the kingdom. We believe you're the Messiah and what have you. But there's a doctrine that they didn't yet understand. And that doctrine is being taught here. And that's what we're going to see. Now, we've been talking about the, the uh, allusions to Job. So keep your finger in Mark. We're coming back. But let's turn to the book of Job. You'll find it before Psalms. Psalms is a big book. Easy to find. And Job is just before it. And we're going to turn to Job, and we're going to turn to Job 26. Job 26. Now, personally, I think verse 2 of Job 26 is, I mean, obviously a lot of Job is poetic, and so it's difficult, but I read this particularly with the clear allusions in Mark 4. I read this as Job accusing God. How have you helped him who has no power? How have you saved the arm that has no strength? How have you counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge with whose help you have uttered words and whose breath has come out from you? Now most versions here translate it with exclamation marks. He's saying, oh wonderful, look how you've helped. But it could also be read as, how have you helped? 
And even if we do read it as, oh, look how you've helped the helpless, the implication is, you're the God who helps the helpless, but you haven't helped me. So however you read that verse, this is, a, this is, this is an implication at the very least of, of accusation and rebuke to God. Verse 5, the dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Sheol is naked before God and Abaddon has no covering. And again, I won't draw attention to it much, but just notice the connection between the sea and Satan and death and, and these kind of things are they're often linked together, not just in the Bible, but in that whole culture at that time. Um, he stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the water in his thick clouds and the clouds is not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon and spreads over his cloud and he has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. That's the surface of the sea. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. He rebukes nature. By his power, he stilled the sea. Isn't that amazing? Look at those links. Look at those connections. God, why have you left me helpless, says Job. You're the one who helps the helpless. You've got power over everything. You've got power over the sea. You can still the sea. You can rebuke nature. Who's he calling out to? He's calling out to God. He's calling out to Yahweh because Yahweh is the one who has authority over nature. Yahweh is the one who can still the storm. Yahweh is the one who rebukes nature, has control over it, is sovereign over it, and he's the one to turn to. And here is faith, by the way, in the book of Job. Job's faith was strong and vibrant in his darkest of hours. He didn't look like we expect faith to look. But who was he shaking his fist at? Who was he turning to? He didn't lie in a corner and wait to die. He didn't go and call out to other gods because Yahweh had deserted him. He kept calling out to Yahweh. Stay in the book of Job. We're going to hit chapter 38. Chapter 38, Job famously gets his answer at long, long last. God answers Job out of the whirlwind. There's deep significance there. It was the whirlwind that killed his family. And that same whirlwind that killed his family is the whirlwind that God comes out of. That's powerful and that's scary. And God is there and he says, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? I dress her action like a man, I will question you and make it known to you. And so he answers, and he talks about him laying the foundations and laying the cornerstones, stretching out the line. There is repetition in this chapter from chapter 26. A lot of the words that are used in chapter 26 where Job's saying, you've done this, you've done this. Job is, uh, God is saying, yes, you're right. I am and I have. And in chapter 38 and verse 8, 
Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no further and here shall your proud waves be stayed. God controls the limit of waves. He can stop them going in boats. And this is, this is lovely. I, 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 this is what we call intertextuality, the Bible relying on the Bible to the max. We've got Mark 4 relying on Mark 1. We've got it referencing and alluding to Job 26. And we've got Job 38, which is alluding to Job 26 as well. Just, it's all connected together. And the point of it all is that Job was somebody who felt deserted by God. He placed his faith in God who had deserted him and didn't turn to anybody else. And he turned to God because God was the one who had the only one who had power over his circumstances, over nature and over the whole world. Now, let's turn to Psalm 44. Lots of Psalms. I'll try and move quicker through these. And by the way, these aren't, these aren't exhaustive. Psalm is just Psalms of the next book after Job, so it's just a few pages on. Psalm 44. No, in fact, leave Psalm 44. I'm going to come back to Psalm 44. Leave Psalm 44. Let's kick off with Psalm 65. Psalm 65. Remember, the Psalms are essentially one big exposition on Exodus 34, God's self-revelation of him and his character and who he is. And the psalmists are meditating on who God is, on what he's done, on his character. And they talk about what he's done, and again, it's similar language. Verse 6, the one who by his strength established the mountain, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas and the roaring of the waves. And look at this interesting connection for our little application at the end. The tumult of the peoples, the tumult of our lives, the storms of our lives are linked. God can control literal storms and he can control the storms in our lives as well. Keeping the Psalms, let's go to Psalm 89. Psalm 89, verse 8. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Yahweh, with your faithfulness all around you? By the way, I, I, do, I do, I try and remember to say Yahweh. Whenever we have Lord in the Old Testament in capitals, you know it's a translation of Yahweh. And I think it's important in the Psalms because this is the self-description of God being echoed and clarified and expanded upon by his saints. It, it, it's, it's who he is, and it's him. It's not any God, it's not any Lord, it's him. So it's, O Yahweh, God of hosts, or armies, who is, who is as mighty as you are, O God, uh, O Yahweh, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Isn't that good? Powerful, powerful stuff. Oh, and by the way, notice that the next verse Rahab is mentioned, which was in the next verse that we didn't cover as well in Job 26. So Psalm 89 
is alluding to Job 26 as well. All based on one another, all linked together. Um, what other psalms have I got for you? We've got three more. They're going to be coming quick. Psalm 104. Hardly any pages to turn here in quick succession. Psalm 104, verses 5 to 9. He set the earth on its foundation so it should never be moved. You covered it with... Uh, you covered it with the deep as a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. Isn't that interesting? Again, it's God's sovereign, but isn't it interesting he uses the word rebuke? God's sovereign over the wind and waves. Again, you've not got far to go. Turn to Psalm 106. Yet, in verse 8... Yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry, and he led them through the desert. He saved them from the hand of the foe, redeemed them from the power of the enemy. The waters covered their adversaries so that not one of them was left. And that's interesting, because we see here that the command that God has over the waves was at the very beginning of the exodus and him taking away the children of Israel from Egypt. At their very genesis, there he is, controlling waves. But, and this is relevant, I think, for our passage, he also has control over when the waves aren't stilled, when they come back down. He used the waves to destroy Pharaoh's army. And finally, the most significant of all the passages so far, Psalm 107. So it's a, it's a song of praise, uh, of the goodness of God, and I'll pick up in verse 23. Um, some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of Yahweh, his wondrous work in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind. Interesting. Who raises the wind as well as stilling it? God raises the wind. That's why I'm, I'm not 100% keen on the sort of Satan causing the storm link. I think, the, as I said, the link with Mark 1 is something slightly different. But God raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the, wind, the, the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. So he uses it as a means of judgment. Uh, they reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wits' ends. So they're like, ah, oh, we're being drowned, we're being drowned. That's the picture being painted. Sound familiar? They cried to the Lord in their trouble. Guys, there is something in Jewish literature called a midrash. And a midrash was like a commentary, but very, very loose on passages. And sometimes midrashes would be narratives. So they tell the story that probably never happened to illustrate, kind of like how I might use an illustration. I tend to, if I use an illustration, use an incident that has happened or something I know. But it's like just making up a story to illustrate the teaching. And this, it's almost as if Mark is a Jewish midrash explaining Psalm 107. It's a story that is, is just almost identical. Look at the repetition of words. 
He's the, look, and, and, and the repetition of circumstances. You've got people, God has raised up a storm, God has brought the storm upon people. The people are in a state of absolute panic and wandering around panic. What on earth are we going to do? They're at their absolute wit's end. These pe people at their wit's end cry to Yahweh in their trouble and he saves them from their distress. He made the storm still and the waves of the sea hushed. They were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank Yahweh, pardon me, I got the hiccups, um, let them thank Yahweh for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Now, that's just powerful. You imagine we often talk about the Emmaus Road, yeah? On the Emmaus Road, Jesus opened up the, script, the scriptures post-resurrection and explained to the disciples the Old Testament passages that were talking about him. That's got to be good, yeah? These, go these guys lived Psalm 107. It's a case of, oh, that was us! The, the parallels here are not minor. The parallels here are not um, slight. This is a direct exposition, commentary, teaching on Psalm 107. And it's not done with words, other than for us. It's done with people's lives. You imagine being that example and that link happening. That's, that, is, that, to me, is, is the most powerful sort of intertextuality, where you're living out the scriptures that were given. Now, I'm going to draw all of this together in a moment, but uh, I'm just going to mark my place there. There's one other detail in the text that we also see in the Old Testament. Um, I'm going to try and turn there. I think at this point it might be quicker if I turn there and I can read quicker rather than waiting for you. But in the text in Mark, and stay in Mark and stay in Psalm 107 as well if you can, but in the text in Mark, there is the moment when the disciples wake Jesus. They woke him, okay? In their distress, they wake him. Now this is a, something that is not alien to the Old Testament. It says uh, in uh, Isaiah 51 and verse 9, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord, arm of Yahweh. The arm of God always represents his power and his might and his strength. Um, o, o arm of the Lord, awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago, was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces? Another Rahab reference immediately afterwards, linking to Job 26. Um, who pierced the dragon, another reference to Job. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters deep, who made the depths of the sea uh, away uh, and for the redeemed to pass over? So now we have in, Psalm, um, in Isaiah 51, we have the sea again. We have allusions to Job 26 again. 
and we have God being called on to awake. Wake up, God! You're the God who controlled the sea at the Passover. Where are you now, God? Wake up! That's the point being made there. And there's all, and I'll turn to another one, but there's also, I just mentioned it in passing, while I turn to the third one, there's also the obvious reference to Jonah. In Jonah 1 and verse 5, where Jonah is asleep in the boat when that boat's sinking. And that's a deliberate parallel again with Jonah. But Jonah is almost like an anti-type. It's like, that's what not to do in those circumstances. He's sleeping and he's unable to help. But ultimately he does help. And then he ends up in the belly of the whale. There's all sorts of stuff there. And I, I, I haven't fully explored it in my own mind. But I draw your attention to the obvious parallel. But the, um, the, last, uh, the last one of these which I think is very significant, and uh, this I think will be our last Old Testament passage, is Psalm 44. We nearly did a spoiler at the beginning. Where it says in Psalm 44 and uh, verse 23, Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Isn't that amazing? Lord, why are you sleeping? What did the disciples say to Jesus? Why are you sleeping? Don't you care? And exactly the same implication here. Rouse yourself, don't reject us forever. The implication is, because you're sleeping, you don't care about us. That, those words of a disciple were fulfilling Psalm 44. They were living out Psalm 44 as well as Psalm 107. You see how rich the scriptures are? This is amazing stuff. So, do not reject us ever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression. Our soul is bowed to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. And so we have a ridiculous number of parallels. Not only do we have parallels showing... Um, oops, I've now just lost the place I did want to keep. Hold on a second, there we are. Not only have we have parallels showing that God is sovereign over the sea, that he's sovereign over the waves, that he rises them up, that he brings them down. Not only do we have parallels of God rebuking, not only do we have parallels of God being called upon and God being called to awake and to rouse himself and to wake up, not only do we have parallels with people panicking and, and people who are, are like, oh, what do we do, what do we do, what do we do? Not only do we have parallels of people calling upon Yahweh and exercising faith. Not only have all this, we also have almost expression by expression, the exact circumstances of at least two psalms. You say, well, that's fascinating, but what does it matter? Well, firstly, I, I think this stuff is, I think me teaching stuff like this on a regular basis should give you more confidence in your scripture than almost anything else. When you see, when you come from a Christianity that's pluck a verse here and pluck a verse there, then you can deny those verses in isolation when times get tough. But when you see the whole span and how it all fits together, you know that the scripture is alive and it's breathing and God is using it. You see it all pan out and there's confidence in the scripture. But above all else, we have, we have every ingredient of this story, every ingredient referenced except the last one. So let's go back to Mark. 
In Mark, the windstorm arises. We know that's God. The boat's filling. We know that's God. Jesus is asleep. Again, that's referencing Old Testament. He awakes. That's Old Testament. He rebukes. That's Old Testament. Then panicking, sorry, before that, that's Old Testament. Him saying, peace, be still, that's Old Testament. The wind ceasing, a great calm, that's Old Testament. And now, let's look again at those two questions. Why are you so afraid? You know, there is the obvious question there. Why, what are you worried about? Now, to us reading it, it's not us, it's not our lives. We can say, well, duh, you're going to question that we're going to die. Jesus is there. Right? But don't be hasty to judge. That's not you. That's not your life. That's not the wind hitting you. That's not the waves hitting you. That's not your boat filling up. When the disciples saw the man having a demon cast out of him, oh, yeah, we have faith now in that guy. Because they're watching it, in a sense, from a distance, from outside. Now it's them. It's another whole level of learning. So why are you so afraid? Because if they knew who it was, they wouldn't have needed to be afraid. And have you still no faith? Now, I do believe, and in, in, in contrast to most commentators, I think that the have you still no faith, immediately, initially, sounds like a rebuke. But I think in light of the references to Psalms and Job, when they had a chance to think on it further, the answer is yes. And what looks like a, re a, a, a rebuke of them is actually also an encouragement. He's saying, have you not got any faith? And the answer is, yeah, we cried out to you. That's the ultimate answer. And that's important. And the question that they then have with this great fear within them, don't fear anyone. There's only one person you should fear. Who should you fear? Yahweh. And the question is, who then is this that even the wind and waves obey him? Guys, as clear as John 1.1, this is a statement of the deity of Jesus Christ. You couldn't be clearer. In fact, I could argue it's more clear. The Jehovah's Witnesses get hold of John 1.1 1, 1 and they somehow throw in the word A and, and they, they try and take away his deity. This you can't escape. And what's so fascinating about it is unlike John 1, this is no theological statement. These are disciples who believe, I, I think, I, I, as I see it, they have heard Jesus preaching, he's preached about the coming kingdom, they're under no illusions that he's the Messiah, he's the one who's going to set up the kingdom, and they believe in the Messiah, they believe what the Bible teaches about the Messiah, but they've missed one glorious truth. That the Messiah, though he is distinct from God, is yet also God. And so the lesson for them is, is saying, you've got this, but now we need to go to the next level. You, with a bit of exorcism, you learned who I was, but it's going to take a little bit more, a little more suffering, a little bit more of a struggle for you to see who I really am. 
And I think, that, and this is an important point to me, that there is a retrospective lesson, as I've said, that what initially seems like him just telling them off, which I think is right, and he is, a rebuke with a rebuke, a correct response to them. They just rebuke Jesus for crying out loud. Let's rebuke him back. But when they go away and they think about it, which clearly they did, they remembered the details, they remembered about the other boat, they remembered it's on the same day, they've written it down, it's in all the gospel accounts. This was a deeply impactful, this is their first lesson, their first practical lesson of their training. And no, they didn't know who Jesus was. And yes, this is a lesson to teach them. But who does the Old Testament say you should cry out to? Who is the one the Old Testament they call upon to awake? It's God. And who did they instinctively turn to? Who did they wake up? Who did they cry out to in their hour of need? They cried out to Christ. And that's not insignificant because it's a lesson for them that the, the recognition of Christ as God incarnate is a natural outworking of the Old Testament truth. This is God. Now I'm finishing now. And I know that most sermons on this passage deal with these kind of details, maybe 10%, and spend the next 90% dealing with what I'm going to deal with for the last 2%. And I think there's good reason for that. I think when we have a basis for application, application goes a lot further. I think when we make our sermon all about application, we don't have a basis for that application. I have shown you in the most clear and uncertain terms that Mark is pointing to Job. He's pointing to, uh, to Job 26 and 38. He's pointing to Psalm, um, Psalm 44 and Psalm 107. And he's pointing to all of these passages and he's showing us that Jesus is God. And the response of people when they're saved, when the waters are stilled in Psalm 107 at the end, is let them thank Yahweh for his steadfast love. The response of the disciples is not just to say thank you Jesus, it should be to say thank you Yahweh, to recognize who he is. But guys, that's us looking at something happening externally. You now have a foundation, I hope better than ever before, that when we look at our waves, when we see our boat filling up with water, that we cry out to Yahweh, that we cry out to Christ, that we have faith in him, that we trust him. We know he might call us to our death, but we know he goes with us every step of the way. And as I'm, for the first time in six years, been starting to experience a little in the last week, when he starts to calm things, then it's our right and our duty to give thanks to God. Listen, I don't need to spend an hour telling you about the storms that they had, or like the storms in your life. You know that. You know that if you're four. You read the text, you know the link. That's not the important thing in the passage. The important thing in this passage 
is that we know who Christ is, that we know who God is, that we know that he is powerful over each and every circumstance. We know that when he brings trials and pain and suffering into our lives, that he is sovereign over that. He allows it. And he's still the covenant-keeping God. He's still the God of kindness. He's the God of compassion. He's the God of love. And everything we spoke about in Colossians this morning is not being plucked out of thin air. The characteristics that God has that we, with Christ in us, are supposed to live out. God's compassion is the basis for our compassion. God's love is the basis for our love. And God cares for us. And when you're sitting in a boat and it's half full of water and the wind and waves are around you and death is imminent, I hold nobody guilty and I rebuke no one for shouting and waving their fist at God and saying, where are you, God? Wake up! Because that is faith and that is the right thing to do. All that matters is that when we do that, we direct it to him. That is faith. And when he does, whether it's in this life or the next, calm the storms of our life, then we give him thanks. Let's pray. Oh God, who brings storms. You are good. Help us to learn. Help us to grow in faith. Help us to cherish you. Amen.